So last episode, I mentioned that the podcast Obscure History was doing a series on the Horrell Brothers of Texas. Well, I figured since it's going to be another week until the next installment of the Wild West Extravaganza, I'd go ahead and share part one of that series with y'all today. Give you a little something to tickle your eardrums with till next Wednesday. So what you're about to hear is part one of The Legend of Samuelville, The Lawless Horrell Brothers. If you like what you hear, and since you're a history lover, you probably will, make sure you give part two, Saint Sammy, a listen as well. That's where it's going to get real wild west with the Horrell Higgins feud down in Texas. Now that's obscure history. You can find that wherever you listen to podcasts. And you will be hearing my happy voice again this time next week with a brand spanking new episode of the Wild West Extravaganza. So without further ado, here's Josh from Obscure History. Hey, Wild West Extravaganza fans. I'm super excited that you get to hear my voice today. My name is Josh, and I host a podcast called Obscure History. Now, I admit I don't always cover Wild West history specifically, but I do sometimes. Frankly, I cover a little bit of everything, so long as it is obscure and interesting. I hope you enjoy this little sampler episode. It's about an urban legend that I grew up with, and how it ties into some very interesting and nefarious Wild West history. I won't talk you off anymore. If you enjoy my show, find it wherever you find your podcasts. But until then, buckle up, because this one is a little wild. In every corner of this nation, there are places that are rumored to exist. Places that are only timidly whispered of in hushed conversations of schoolchildren. Places that seem too strange, too frightening, or too bizarre to be true. I'm sure you're thinking of one right now, aren't you? Such a place exists in the most remote reach of Eastern Oregon, and it's the stuff of pure legend. My name is Josh, and this is Obscure History. For centuries, parents have used fantastical characters to metaphorically beat their children into submission. These boogeymen have long kept children on the straight and narrow path. Kids grow up afraid that if they step out of line, one of these legendary figures might come and punish them swiftly for their actions. For some families, this character is maybe Krampus, the Christmas monster that will eat you alive if you aren't kind to your siblings all the year round. For my family, it was Sammy. As a boy, I grew up in Oregon's northeastern corner, in a deep, circular valley. In the winter, the mountains surrounding my town stood like tall white sentinels, barring entrance or exit. The air in those winter months was frigid, a biting dry cold that stole the breath from your lungs. Additionally, this valley remained in a state of near-constant blustering gale. For weeks and weeks, 
the earth was covered in a blanket of snow, at first smooth and pure, and then muddy half-shoveled mounds. In the summer, this valley burned to a crisp. The mountains, which had stood tall and white surrounding the small towns in the winter, became large, scorched reminders that the sun, if given the chance, will destroy everything it touches. The heat fell upon the land like lava, heavy, suffocating. In those blistering months, the only greenery visible within the valley was the perpetually emerald fields of the various farms and ranches, which were always a bustle with activity. Though this valley more or less existed in a state of severe polarity, it wasn't completely void and valueless. The mountains held little pockets of enchanted forest, the kinds of places where the sun splits through the pines in thin amber rays, where rich violet huckleberries can be found along well-worn footpaths, where distant bird songs draw you further and further into the wild, tangled mess of trees and shrubs. The kind of places where talking deer and mysterious elves must live hiding just around the next bend. But just as in all fairy tales, these enchanted forests held dark secrets. The grandest and most terrifying secret hiding in those forests was Sammyville. They used to say that up in the foothills of the Wallowa Mountains was a ramshackle assortment of huts and hovels. Nobody could quite figure out the exact location of Sammyville, but every dusty road held the threat that it could lead you away from society, little by little until the world shifted and changed. They used to say that out in Sammyville, things were different, like an outlaw's hideout from days gone by. It was a place without power, or water, or laws. A place filled with inbred mutants, drug runners, gun runners, rum runners, and all manner of no-good low-life scum. If you accidentally ran up on Sammy's land, you were never seen again. Shot on sight, or tortured slowly, or turned into some ungodly horror through weird and wild experimentation. And everybody knew somebody who'd gone missing up in those foothills. Victims. Possibly eternal residents of Sammyville. They used to say that the only thing scarier than Sammyville was Sammy, the self-proclaimed governor, banker, postmaster, judge, police force, and executioner. He stood seven feet tall, had teeth that didn't quite fit his skull, a frumpy straw hat that covered one eye, blood-stained overalls, revolvers on both hips, a rifle on his back and knives in his boots. He was a phantom that was chased out of town and made to live a life of his own in those foothills. He was the kind of guy that would skin you alive if you crossed him. A real Wild West outlaw. And the worst part, it was all true. At least that's what they used to say. Obviously, these things weren't true, but when I was 13, they certainly seemed like it. Especially since I grew up with somebody who had first-hand knowledge of Sammy, the man, the myth, and the legend. 
My grandpa was an imposing figure, barrel-chested, quiet, serious, a real old-school man's man kind of man. He was a fire chief for 50 years, so when he told me that the police made a habit of not going to Sammyville, I believed him. But who was Sammy really? And what exactly was Sammyville? Honestly, those questions are difficult to answer. You see, Sammyville wasn't a scene from The Hills Have Eyes, and Sammy wasn't Leatherface, or even Billy the Kid. But he was eccentric, and Sammyville was more than a little rough around the edges. The true nature of Sammyville and its eponymous founder, Sam Horrell, is captured perfectly by Los Angeles Times writer Kim Murphy. She explains, It's showtime at the old Elgin Opera House, and Sammy's come to town. But watch out, he's got the thirty caliber Ruger Blackhawk slung on his hip. The last time Sammy came to the Opera House, the story goes, a John Wayne movie was playing. Sammy got so excited when a bandit sneaked out from behind a rock that he opened fire on the screen. Asked to confirm the story, Sam Horrell only smiles. But the Ruger goes everywhere with him. And if you remember that fact, you will know most of what you need to know about Sammyville. Location, five miles up the road from Elgin. Population, 39. Motor vehicle count, approximately 155. Number of working vehicles, approximately three. Gun count, 150. And that's if you're just counting what Sammy packs. Everybody else likes to keep that sort of information quiet, if you know what they mean. Sammyville began as a family homestead in the 1930s. For over 20 years, the homestead was without the simplest utilities that seemed so essential to our survival. Running water, electricity, telephone lines, or even indoor plumbing. Despite only finishing the third grade, by the 1950s, Sammy Horrell had fully equipped his homestead with centralized water, efficient dirt streets, electricity, telephone lines, and a fully operational snowplow and fire truck. He even accommodated for indoor functional plumbing. And once the Horrell family homestead was modernized, it began to expand. Through the years, the Horrell family homestead became the landing place for many a log cabin, trailer, tent, and miscellaneous shanty. When an obstacle presented itself to Sammy, like a tree stump, for example, he blew it up with dynamite and built over top the smoldering ashes. That's just the kind of guy old Sammy Horrell was. If there was something in his way, he fixed it in the quickest and most effective way possible. After clearing out room for the new homes, he rented the makeshift domiciles for less than $400 a month to anyone who needed a place to go. And often, those who ended up in Sammyville did so because they either had no option, or they didn't want to be found elsewhere. Many of the residents of Sammyville were on the run from the law for one reason or another. Though much of Sammyville's reputation was undeserved, particularly the inbred mutant rumors, one thing is absolutely true about it. It really was like a frontier outpost, and Sammy was the Wild West Sheriff. Former Union County Sheriff Steve Oliver recalls a time when he drove out to ask Sammy about a report that somebody was firing off a fully automatic AR-15 in the woods. It was semi-automatic, Sammy said. 
Then he wanted to inspect the sheriff's service rifle in the truck and advised him on what he ought to buy. Firing out here to that road, you need a little more oomph than a shotgun, he said. And that was the end of that particular discussion. Sheriff Oliver also noted that sheriff's deputies made it a regular stop, serving various warrants on its inhabitants for things like drugs, theft, and sexual assault. As often as not, Oliver would phone Sammy first and the suspect of the day would be produced without further comment. Another example of Sammy's rough justice comes from Sammy himself, who recalls one night when a dozen or so guys got to drinking and brawling. In an attempt to keep the peace, Sammy made his way into the fray. When one of the men started to pick a fight, Sammy said, Friend, take one more step and I'll blow you through that wall over there. I had a pair of Colt 45s, and the hammers were cocked and my fingers were on the trigger, and I tell you, I meant business. Them sons of guns sat down and listened. As always, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Sammy wasn't some Hollywood zombie creep intentionally housing thieves, murderers, and sexual predators to form some sort of mountain gang to keep the feds out of their business. But he did religiously wear dirty overalls, a slouchy hat, and at least two revolvers at all times. And he did really carry out a sort of frontier-style tough justice. Similarly, Sammyville wasn't an assembly of the grossest buildings and nastiest people available. But in 2009, one of its residents did commit triple murder just outside the city limits. And admittedly, many of the people that went through Sammyville were intentionally trying to lay low for one reason or another. However, the most interesting thing about Sammyville, in my opinion, can only be seen when we look even further into the Horrell family tree. It seems that it was almost destiny for Sammy Horrell to be the judge, jury, and executioner of his very own frontier outpost. But before we start peeling away the branches and looking deeper into the past, let's stop for a few and pay the bills. Hang tight, in about 90 seconds I'll be back and we'll get to the real mayhem. About 60 years before little Sam Horrell and his family would settle into the Grand Ronde Valley in Oregon, the lawless Horrell boys were terrorizing Texas. Shortly before the beginning of the Civil War, the Horrell family settled in Lampasas, Texas. And things were fine, at first, but they would not remain that way for long. On February 10, 1873, Governor Davis issued an order prohibiting the carrying of firearms inside the town limits of Lampasas, Texas. Seven state police officers arrived shortly afterwards to help enforce the new mandate. On March 14, 1873, state officers Wesley Cherry, Jim Daniels, and Andrew Melville arrested Bill Bowen, a brother-in-law to the Horrell brothers, for carrying a firearm. The officers then entered Jerry Scott's saloon with Bowen in tow. After a verbal exchange with the Horrell brothers who were inside the saloon, a gunfight ensued, leaving four officers dead, including Captain Williams. Though wounded, the Horrell brothers escaped the gunfight with their lives. But the consequences of this gunfight would be far-reaching. For those who study crime, this progression is probably familiar. A person kills by accident once and then becomes filled with an insatiable bloodlust that cannot be satisfied. It happened to John Wayne Gacy, 
Jeffrey Dahmer, and Mart, Tom, Merritt, Ben, and Sam Horrell. Following the gunfight, several more state police were sent to the county. Mart Horrell and three friends were quickly arrested and taken to Georgetown, Texas jail. However, he would not stay cooped up for long. After the arrest, the remaining Horrell brothers, as well as 23 other accomplices, busted Mart out, and the brothers, now reunited, fled to Lincoln County, New Mexico. Once there, Ben Horrell quickly befriended Lincoln County Sheriff Jack Guilin. On December 1st, 1873, Sheriff Guilem and Ben Horrell rode into the town of Lincoln and began drinking, visiting brothels and saloons, and eventually discharging their firearms in the street while drunk. Constable Juan Martinez demanded that they turn over their weapons. They complied and were not arrested. Soon afterward, they had acquired more pistols and were once again shooting, this time inside a brothel. When confronted by Constable Martinez again, Ben Horrell shot and killed him. Horrell and Guilem fled. A posse of additional lawmen caught up with them before they were able to leave town and killed them both. In retaliation, the remaining Horrell brothers, as well as an accomplice or two, went on a racially motivated killing spree. They began by killing two prominent Mexican ranchers. Then on December 20th, 1873, the brothers stormed a celebration in Lincoln, killing four Hispanic men and wounding one Hispanic woman. Shortly afterward, Edward Hart, a friend to the Horrell brothers, shot and killed Deputy Sheriff Joseph Haskins due to his marriage to a Hispanic woman. Less than a week later, brothers and their friends came into contact with freight wagons just outside Roswell, New Mexico, maintained by five Hispanic men, all of whom were killed by the brothers. Feeling the heat of impending manhunts, the brothers Horrell decided to flee Lincoln County and return home to Limpasas. But little did they know, their reputation preceded them, and life in Texas wouldn't quite be the same as it was before. Long-held friendships would be tainted, jobs would be all dried up, and their welcome would already be overstayed. That is a story for another time. Join me next week as we get to the bottom of the Bloody Horrell Brothers and finally figure out exactly what's going on in Sammyville. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I sincerely appreciate it. Now, you know that this is a little bit short for me. Usually my episodes are a bit longer, but this was going to be one of those weeks where I either put out the longest episode I've ever done or two slightly smaller episodes and make it a two-part series. And you know which one I will always go for. (laughs) Um, If you are a premium subscriber... Hang on tight. I will get you your premium content. Uh, I am putting it off until next week, though, because I'm really trying to cook up something special. Uh, I'm hoping to have an exclusive interview with my grandpa about Sammy, which should be a blast. 
Uh, our schedules are very difficult to work around, though. So uh, hang tight. Be patient. It will come out soon enough. Now, I would like to let you know that, as always, this episode was brought to you in part by Your Buds Podcast Collective and Indie Drop-In Network. Ariel and Greg are two of the best people in the business, and if you are trying to find your new second favorite show, go to either of their places, use either of their products. You'll find shows that are big and small, large networks, independently produced, themed recommendations, feed drop of all of the best indie podcasts out there. Honestly, if you're looking for a new podcast and you go to those two places, I guarantee you will find something that you like. And that is mostly a promise. (laughs) I won't guarantee anything because I know people are weird and picky, but I'm sure that if you listen to a few episodes of Indie Drop-In and read a few of Ariel's newsletters, you would definitely find something that suits you. Okay, I don't have too much more to say or I'm going to start giving away secrets for next episode. Uh, this I was hesitant about making this one, but it seemed very obscure unless you grew up in the same tiny little corner of the world that I did. So <laughs> hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully you will also enjoy it next week. Thank you so much, everybody. I uh, It is 1230 at night right now, so I've got to go. You guys have a nice week. I will see you next Monday.